Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast, where I am so excited to welcome back to the show a good friend of mine who is doing some amazing work in the field of education. It's Angela Morabito, former press secretary at the Department of Education, and she's also now the spokesperson for Defense of Freedom Institute. Don't forget to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Hey, thank you for joining me again today, Angela. Stacy, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I we have so much to talk about. It's this, every time you come on, I'm like, okay, well, you know, you know, like freaking out a little bit because there's so much. And all of these things, if they have to do with education, it has to do with your kids. If it has to do with your kids, it's a volatile, really emotional, laden issue. And so I want to start off with kids in K through 12 and charter schools. Your website is dfipolicy.org. And you are actually doing some work to protect charter schools because they're under an unprecedented threat from the Biden administration. Tell us what Biden is proposing and how it impacts the charter schools. Well, this is National Charter Schools Week, so it is a great time to be talking about uh, these schools and, and what they do for millions of students across the country. But when we talk about this, we also have to talk about what they might not be allowed to do for students who really, really need these educational options. And the Biden administration has proposed a rule that would block charters from accessing uh, $440 million in federal funding unless they partner with government-run schools. So you would have potential future charters needing to get the permission from the local teachers union just to be able to access this funding and funding that, quite frankly, many of them need to exist. So President Biden wants to have the fox guard the hen house here or really say you can't build a new hen house without the fox's uh, express permission and promise to work with it. And uh, I have a guess about exactly how well that is going to go. His proposal is a giveaway to the teachers unions. It's going to end up harming students. And there are more than a million kids on charter school wait lists across the country. So the demand is there. But if this proposal is allowed to go forward, uh, the the supply may not no longer exist. So let's let's like do parents need another attack on education or another thing from the Biden administration right now? I'm talking about you know, 2022, three years into the pandemic, do we really need something else from the Biden administration on education? Absolutely not. This should be a time for cutting red tape instead of adding even more. Clearly, the demand is there because you have a million kids on these wait lists across the country. This is an option that parents want and deserve and cutting off the supply just makes no sense, especially because President Biden was actually really supportive of charter schools before he ran for president. So uh, I I would love to know what changed and I would really love even more for it to get fixed so that people would be able to send these kids, send their kids to these schools. So that is such a great point. Biden has changed on so many issues. It's almost hard to... uh to keep up, but I guess we'll just, we'll have to muddle along. Um, So now turning to, and this is still in the realm of charters, um, the new rule, how do we oppose it? How do we, because I know you're, you're basically doing an information piece here with me and you're going across the country on different podcasts, radio shows, anywhere that you can get in and and inform people this is going on. What do you recommend parents do? Because I think that in and of itself, a million people on a wait list for anything well, in the private sector, that's business gold. I mean, that means you've you've struck a nerve and you're about to be a r- very rich person. 
But when it when you talk about schools, it's still a slow process to get new charters open, to get permission for charters, and it's it's such a like wading through quicksand to get a charter school open. Even if you have the building, even if you have the teachers, if you have everything you need, you still have all these regulations because the NEA and public schools don't want charters opening near their buildings. So, what do you recommend parents do to to push back against the Biden administration's new rule? We know that public outcry makes a difference. And last fall, when the administration proposed uh, stopping collecting certain data points about teacher-on-student sexual assault, the public outcry was massive, as it should have been. And it actually got the Department of Ed to reconsider and to drop that misguided proposal. Uh, even though the public comment period for uh, this particular proposal is closed, during that time, the Defense of Freedom Institute submitted a comment that said, we shouldn't be doing this for myriad reasons. It is wrong for students. It is wrong for families. And Stacy, this one hits home for me. I am a very proud alum of a public charter high school. Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about, oh, it's public schools versus charter schools. Well, that's not true because charter schools are public schools and they traditionally uh, tend to perform really, really well for their students. So the only real opponents of charter schools are the teachers unions and the Biden administration has already kind of said whose side that they're on. So the best thing to do is if you're a part of a charter school family, if you are on a waiting list for a charter school, you want to get plugged in and make sure that you pay attention when rulemaking is happening, that you show up to school board meetings for the public school where your charter school is you know, in that district to ensure that they're not planning on doing things that hurt you. And if you know people who are members of the NEA, meaning you have teachers in your life, you should explain to them the value that the charter school has in your child's life, in your family, and then say to them, you know, I'd really appreciate it if person to person, you would just agree with me that just like you have a right to be a teacher and a member of the NEA, my child has a right to go to a charter school. And would you please not work against my child and my family by opposing charter schools when those things come up? Will you please be open to having those things exist alongside your school building? And I think it's that that's the missing piece for us as Americans. We right. really have a lot of teachers in our lives. A lot. Most people have at least one teacher in their family or in their extended family through marriage. We don't talk to them about how their organization that is supposed to just protect their rights and bargain for them actually works against the interests of children whose needs aren't being met in public schools. So we really need to do something about that. That's exactly right. And when you have those conversations, a great thing to talk about is uh, really to steal a buzzword from the teachers unions themselves. They love to talk about equity and they love to talk about inclusion. Well, charter schools are statistically really inclusive places. When you look at the numbers, they're statistically more diverse than many typical public schools. And even though the test score performance varies by location, uh, in, in quite a few major cities where the traditional public schools are failing so many kids, the stats show that charter schools actually help the worst off students, that they are helping to close the achievement gap. So anytime you see somebody who's uh, with a teacher's union or representing a teacher's union talking about equity, it's time for everybody to say, hey, 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 wait a second. If you want to do the most fair and inclusive thing for these students, you put families in the driver's seat and give their parents options. 
now. That's excellent. That that's feels like a rallying cry. Feels like something exciting instead of you know negativity and kind of like oh you know how horrible. This is actually this this works for parents. Um, so let's talk about affirmative action in college admissions because for any moms and dads who are listening and they're like, well, you, I'm like Stacy. My kids are in college. Well, guess what? Angela has some information for you as well. Um, there, we have a mission that, to assign for college age parents as well. Uh, this is affirmative action in college admissions. This is something that really it can tear apart friendships. People have, you know, unfriended each other on Facebook over this. But I think the more that we know about it and the more we converse, the better the situation is for everyone because we, we don't have a true understanding of how this impacts students. So talk to us about what's going on. Well, there's big news coming out at the Supreme Court. Uh, it's going to hear a case pretty soon about uh, admission, college admissions and what really makes something fair. The case is called Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, and it exposes that Harvard is so-called holistic review process is not holistic at all. It's not based on merit. They're giving people huge advantages if their parents are, are alums, especially if their parents are faculty, even if their parents have no connection to the school, but they're celebrities or they're ultra wealthy, and the dean thinks that they can you know, potentially write a, a large check to the school. This is not hypothetical. It's, it's a real thing called the dean's interest list, where these schools are privileging students, of course, not based on what they've actually accomplished or who they are as people or what their high school record looks like, but just based on who their parents are and how much money and power those parents supposedly have. So this case could put an end to that. And the Defense of Freedom Institute has filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court saying, this has got to stop. It doesn't make any sense to look at race in college admissions. We should be looking at who people are, not what they look like, not, not some sort of immutable characteristic that has nothing to do with who people are at the core. We ought to reconsider the decision that was made in a case back in 2003 called Grutter v. Bollinger, in which the court said that schools may have a compelling interest in creating a diverse student body. That it can be, you know, race can be a factor as long as there's holistic review. But these days, schools are not using a holistic review process, and they're actually using a really narrow definition of diversity. They're just looking at race when they could be looking about all the other factors that could make someone a great contributor to their campus community. So let's talk about this a little bit further, because this has always enraged me to no end. And I think it is also, unfortunately, but, you know, it goes to a point. Um, it's used by people who on the left who support affirmative action policy based on race. They say, well, you have legacy admissions. Someone who has a C average can still get into an Ivy League institution because their parent went there. Um, you have legacy admissions. That's what those are called. You also have um, what you just described, which is basically famous privilege or rich privilege. You're super rich, and so therefore you would be an asset to the school because your parent might write a check for $50 million and build a whole wing or fund a, an entire research institute for the school, um, which that parent might do they might do that for the school since they're alum anyway, but you admitting their child who has a B minus average over another child who has an A plus average and everything else is perfect. It basically says there are only so many slots. And so we need to usher these these kids in because of their wealth or their their fame or the importance of their parents. That is really unfair. Now, it's also reality and, and we have to deal in reality. And the fact is, if you are rich, if you are famous, if you have extreme wealth or power, 
you do get extra privileges. And that's not just in America. That's everywhere. Those things actually preclude you from um, having to deal with some of the things that regular people find so annoying. But that being said, you're talking about a concerted effort to ensure that there are more of these students there. It's not a once or twice or you know three times. We're talking about a persistent policy that forces kids who have true academic merit out on the side. They're not even considered because they need as many famous, wealthy, and powerful people, their children, I should say, in the mix as possible. Exactly. And there, there are quite a few ways in which Harvard puts its thumb on the scale. And Harvard could have a way more diverse student body if they stopped privileging legacies, if they stopped privileging athletes, if they stopped privileging uh, children of faculty and staff, if they stopped privileging people with famous parents just because they could potentially write a big check down the road. So when Harvard tries to talk to the rest of the world about diversity and equity, there is something they could do literally tomorrow to become a more diverse and equitable place. But they're just not willing to do it because they're gunning for that money, power, and status. And they're willing to disadvantage students who have worked maybe their whole lives to go to Harvard in order to accomplish that mission. So then there's also the issue of, and I, I've, I've actually spoken to a couple of people who are, are also, you know, they're, they filed amicus briefs on this as well. And I got to tell you, Angela, it, it was interesting to hear the angst um, kind of maddening, really, of Asian students who outperform for their percentage of population. So schools are worried that there'll be, quote unquote, too many Asians. And so they're actually penalized for having 4.6 or 4.8 GPA, you know, um, you know, all, all of the different things that, that make you a excellent candidate to go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. They're penalized for that. And they're not admitted because they just have like basically a ratio or a cap of how many Asian students can attend. And then once they hit that, they go back to their regular policy of trying to get every famous kid, every rich kid, you know, and of course, balancing for diversity, which means admitting students of color who may or may not actually meet the criteria. It's sad, it's unfair, and the Supreme Court should put a stop to it, not just because it's sad and unfair, but because it's actually illegal. Uh, under the 14th Amendment and under Title VI, you, you can't be treating people differently based on race, and especially not at somewhere that is taking millions and millions of dollars in federal funding. That's what Title VI says, that no federal funding should go to an institution that discriminates based on race. Well. Harvard and quite a few other schools like it are doing that out in the open. And historically, these major colleges have gotten, uh, in school terms, basically a hall pass of, all right, you're a major institution, run it the way you want. Well, when it's this unfair and this illegal, run it the way you want has to stop somewhere. And that's why you know we believe that the Supreme Court should finally say, all right, let's make college admissions a little more fair, a little bit more reasonable. And to give you an idea of what the advantage looks like for someone who, uh, for example, is the, the child of a professor. If you got a perfect score on the SAT, if you absolutely aced it, you have a 50-50 shot at getting into Harvard. That is how competitive it is. But regardless of how you scored on the SAT, if your mom or dad is a Harvard professor, you've got a 47% chance at getting in. So I don't see a world in which uh, having your, your parents count as much as your academic achievement is in any way fair or the right way to treat these applicants. So now let's talk a little bit about going forward. What does it look like if the Supreme Court rules in favor of these litigants who are trying to basically equalize the process? And what is the offshoot? Because I, I, I think in a country like ours, 
we have only a certain number of Ivy League institutions, and they've been that way for quite a while. Maybe there's a time for a new Ivy League. Maybe there's a time for an expansion of what's considered Ivy League. Maybe there's a Harvard East and a Harvard West so that you have um, you know, this, the, the same prestige but more openings because our population has increased significantly since the days when Harvard you know, was still an elite school, but it was a Christian school. And um, you just had fewer applicants because there were fewer Americans. So how, how do they, and it's a two-part question, how do they handle the fact that there are just more people that want to attend than there are slots? And then what does it look like for them going forward if the Supreme Court strikes down their current policy? Well, if the Supreme Court strikes down their current policy, that's going to really depend on the finer points of the ruling, what these schools are actually allowed to do. We're hopeful that it will restore a college admissions process that's based on merit and really on nothing else. You ought to be looking at that student and their abilities, their skills, their talents, and their goals. Nothing else really ought to matter. And to answer your question about schools competing, My answer there is going to sound a whole lot like my answer on charter schools, which is competition makes education better. By all means, there should be new universities popping up who are competing for the best and brightest students in this country. It would uh, ideally, hopefully, drive costs down and it would drive opportunity up. There are plenty of kids out there who deserve to go to a great school, but they're kept out for for reasons that are absolutely ridiculous. So I think it is high time that schools either take notice and realize that they should just be going for the best and brightest students that they can get, or you know maybe it's time for some other schools to pop up and do that in their stead. I think there is a huge opportunity here for someone who wants to come in and say, hey, we're just going to treat our students fairly. Wouldn't that be revolutionary? Uh, I, I think that school would do well. And look, I'm in Atlanta, I'm in the South. So if that school had a good football team, they would do especially well. But again, <laughs> we're talking about athlete preference here where you don't want to put your hand on the scale in favor of certain people and against others. I know that college football is almost a religion where I'm at, but that is not what we should be basing admissions on. It should be about who these students are uh, academically. Okay. And so I, I I love the answer there because I said about five or six years ago that because of in this, you know, this was before the term woke was really as prevalent as it is now. I said the this new mantra that leans towards putting politics into everything, if it infects the greatest institutions of education we have in this country, and these are the ones that we in our minds think, you know, the Big Ten, the Ivy League, those are the ones that have the most prestige. Those are the ones, you know, when your resume hits the table or, you know, hits the email box and it has one of those institutions, it immediately goes to the top. But there have been articles written by, you know, people who own companies who say that they're finding that the quality of those graduates is going down when they have certain degrees. And so um, there is a certain cleaving away, like the modern era brings new modern ideas and new modern um, like bests and firsts. And so just like Elon Musk is, he's kind of the, you know, Ford of our day because he's ushering in what he hopes to be the era of the electric car. It seems to me that a school that has that mindset that you just elucidated so well would be able to rise to the top as what is considered the new Harvard, you know, so Harvard doesn't really lose all of its prestige, but it just has someone else to compete with. I think that's a glorious idea. And it's very American. 
It absolutely is. And those competitors would make the Harvards of the world better because they would have to compete. So nobody loses from having more options. Nobody loses from having more institutions that are going to help students excel. And I'll tell you, I mean, in my career, I've worked with people who went to, you know, top of the top Ivy League schools who are great. I've worked with people who went to colleges I had literally never heard of who were also great. So just as colleges shouldn't judge applicants by their last name or their parents' last name, I don't think employers really ought to be judging students by the name on their diploma. I think holistic review can benefit people in a lot of ways, uh, even outside of the college admissions offices. Well, we'll have to see what happens. I'm also waiting for um, Asians to kind of start a university that's based solely upon excellence and then start cranking out graduates and saying, match our graduates up against any Harvard, Yale or, you know, a Stanford graduate take a look at our graduates. I, I'm, I've not seen that, but I, I'm wondering if that could also be a, a kind of a offshoot of everything that we're seeing here. I look forward to seeing the case, uh, the resolution of that case and having you back to talk about it so that we can explore this issue even further. And I'm so glad that your organization, dfipolicy.org, dfipolicy.org, um, that you're doing what you're doing. The Defense of Freedom Institute, you can find it at dfipolicy.org. Angela Morabito, you're their spokesperson and good friend of the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Stacy. All right, and that's another podcast for the books. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and find me at stacyontheright.com, familyvisionmedia.org if you want to watch some of our podcasts on video. They're all there for you. All right, have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time.